0: Hi, this is Isaac Arthur. Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive: Giant Space Monsters. To get access and help support the show, while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv/isaacarthur and use my code IsaacArthur. Our destiny may lie among the stars, billions upon billions of new worlds. But what strategies might we employ to claim that future? Welcome to the first episode of our ninth season of Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur, and I am your aforementioned host, Isaac Arthur. Over the years our show has become known for many things, from my borderline jingle of get a drink and a snack before we begin, to my peculiar speech impediment and accent, but maybe most of all for the topic of space colonization, and it seemed a good topic to start the year off with. How to colonize the stars is a big topic, and the strategies depend a lot on your technologies as well as your goals and the current geopolitical or intrasolar political situation. Many of these topics are ones we've explored in greater detail in other episodes, so as we usually do on the show, we'll put a thumbnail of the cover of the relevant episode or playlist up on the screen and do an in-video card for as many as YouTube lets us put up there, and you can watch those deeper dives now or at your leisure allowing us to keep things reasonably brief in today's episode. That's still a lot to cover so we'll be here for a bit, and you might want to grab a drink and a snack, and if you're new to the show, feel free to turn on the closed captions for the episode right down there by the like and subscribe buttons. Now on this show we tend to assume that traveling FTL, faster than light velocity, is not something we should expect to ever become a reality, and in that context, every colony can be thought of as being abandoned from the outset. When the nearest gas station, grocery store, or hospital is trillions of miles away, and even simple radio communications can take many years to travel each way, there's a limit to how much real-time support some colony is getting after it gets shipped out. Even if we did achieve FTL travel though, there still likely be huge bottlenecks on colonization, especially early colonization which would presumably begin occurring as soon as it was practical rather than easy, but this raises a good starting point for discussion because many notions folks have about space colonization are from science fiction and some of these don't really hold up to scrutiny very well. For instance, a common theme in science fiction is for space colonization to start slowly, with great big ox ships traveling at a fraction of light speed and for them to often be superseded by FTL ships later on. Given the timeline for traveling between stars at sublight speeds, it tends to be assumed some or even all of these ships will get to their destination and find some faster vessel launched after them has already arrived, or even come by and pick them up on the way. The latter could be possible as it's an easy way to grab some extra colonists and cargo, But in such a scenario I could imagine people bypassing those ships or even pirating them. Instead of a friendly pick up of fellow colonists and a sharing of gear, they might simply want to cannibalize their remaining reaction mass and gear and kill or brainwash the crews. After all, by jumping their claim on a new world, they're already taking a bit of a thief or predatory role. Regardless of whether or not we ever achieve some hypothetical FTL technology, it is realistic to assume our four ships won't be our fastest ships, but it's less realistic to assume they would get passed by and route for one thing, they wouldn't actually be on the same course even when traveling to the same star as stars move relative to each other and quite quickly at that, tens or hundreds of kilometers per second times billions of seconds, given that even a short interstellar journey would involve decades all while your own departure and arrival spots inside a solar system would be likely to change. After all, even two ships launching from Earth, six months apart, are 300 million kilometers distant relative to the Sun, which is considerably further than any human has ever traveled in a spaceship. Space is vast, and while we often contemplate building massive interstellar laser highways to speed ships between colonized systems, those come later than early ships your railroads and airports come after your covered wagons, so to speak. So you're not on the same course and you're not going the same speed, and if your ship moves at a quarter of light speed and the old model moves at around 10%, that would require a huge expenditure of fuel to match courses and speeds with them. A journey to colonize Epsilon Indy, a star system ten light years away, would take that first ship moving a tenth of light speed an entire century to reach. But merely 40 years for the second ship moving at a quarter of light speed. That's ignoring relativistic effects which would be fairly minimal even at that higher velocity, shortening your own experience of the trip by just a few percent. Generally speaking, slowing time down internally by relativity at very high fractions of light speed is not going to be a viable strategy for extending crew life to reach a destination, too much energy waste, and too much enhanced risk of damage, and we'll discuss alternatives in a bit. It's entirely plausible that in decades following a colony ship launch we might improve the engines by that much, 10% to 25% of light speed, but I'm not sure we would launch a ship there as opposed to one of the countless other neighboring stars just a bit further away, unless it was an engine improvement made very soon after the first launch. So too, it is likely any interstellar arc would have the manufacturing capability to perform an engine upgrade while moving. This also tends to imply very fast engine improvements relative to travel times, so these sorts of overruns would likely be rare. Also any enmity is less likely to result in an act of piracy and more likely to be performed using a stealthy mass driver or missile shot to the rear. Killing spaceships from behind is very easy, and made easier because a colony ship needs to slow down, and it takes the same fuel to reach twice the speed as it does to reach that speed and slow. Stealth in space is very hard, but a missile following behind you is much stealthier to you than the reverse, and your ship isn't likely to have a massive and exceptional detector pointed behind you. Even with the same engine design as you, it can run up to you at least twice as fast and devote its cargo to more fuel, guidance, tracking, and even submunitions. It doesn't need to be very big compared to your ship either, so they can probably send thousands of them after you. And if it's going 20% of light speed and you're going 10%, then if your detection gear is so good that you could pick out this dark projectile at a million kilometers, which would be pretty amazing, you'd still only have about half a minute to get your countermeasures online and blow it away and probably is going to have some fuel remaining to engage in a final approach, random jittering, to make that harder, assuming it doesn't split into a thousand fist-sized relativistic cannonballs, each also possessing some guidance and maneuvering ability, and at that relative speed, each object carries more destructive potential on-collision than a nuclear warhead of the same mass. Mind you, there are defensive countermeasures available, like leaving a trail of even smaller missiles in your wake, or a thin sheet of material you tow hundreds of kilometers behind you that they'd smash against and detonate on. But then there's ways around that too, countermeasures and counter-countermeasures and so on, but the core advantage lies with the pursuer, both from chasing you and from having a planet behind them for which to churn out endless missiles and pursuit vessels. This definitely is relevant to colonization strategy because it means that if your home solar system is not unified, then colonization needs to be negotiated and is likely to see many different groups claiming various bits in disputed and somewhat chaotic chunks rather than evenly cut pie. That does not mean those negotiations are particularly fair or equitable, but even a smaller nation would be in a position to detect every colony ship launch and hurl missiles after them. This means some rogue state can't get away with launching thousands of automated colony ships, such as von Neumann probes, which we'll be discussing in some detail next Sunday, and by that get a jump on everybody else, because these ships are very easy to track from behind, and more so during launch and acceleration, so they will chase them all down and kill them before they ever reach another location to replicate themselves they must slow down in order to rendezvous with some source of material like an asteroid in order to replicate because rendezvousing with an asteroid at 10% of light speed is not an interaction that results in producing more interstellar probes, unless you count the high-speed interstellar dust spawned by that collision. This takes us to the use of artificial intelligence and also freezing people, it is generally the position of this show that the same technologies that let you thaw out and revive a frozen person from a century long trip also let you repair the cellular damage of aging, so that freezing people would be more about minimizing resource usage and saving on boredom than getting your colonists there alive. And the power savings for running life support for people for centuries is actually rather small compared to the energies needed to accelerate and decelerate that ship. So, it's not super vital to freeze people for that reason. It seems very likely that all ships would make extensive use of computers and AI, and we understand AI better now, so we know that AI is as large a domain, if not larger, than the entire biological kingdom, from amoeba to human or oak tree. There's no real reason to expect any human level AI to be required in the future on spaceships interstellar navigation itself is well inside the computational capacity of your smartphone, for instance, there's not any obvious jobs we would need them for. The general lone exception would be a mother AI whose job it was to incubate and raise humans from frozen embryos at the destination, as that seems a specific case of needing a human equivalent. Though that's not guaranteed, more of an educated guess that seems reasonable but so did all of our assumptions about needing human-level AI for other jobs in the past that turned out not to be required. But in such a case, a copy of a human mind, or several, selected for existing parenting and colonizing skills, and able to remotely control robots or even androids, would seem just as effective. Your mileage may vary on if such a copied and uploaded mind was an AI, or a human, or both. It is a gray area we also have to view through a fog bank of ignorance at a distance right now. So, while I tend to refer to a case like that as a human, it is just a semi informed opinion. We would usually refer to that sort of colony as a seed ship, one with frozen or digital DNA and embryos on board, and run by AI or uploaded human minds. It may be subhuman too, and only intended to set up basic space infrastructure and begin terraforming with colonists expected to follow later, bringing a menagerie while the AI plants microorganisms and vegetation and maybe insects. Also a key colonization strategy, we would expect arriving colonial efforts to begin in space, building up all the satellite grids and asteroid or comet mining operations, not just land on some planets and live under domes. Indeed, it would be more likely that the early focus would be on orbital habitats such as O'Neill cylinders, habitats that provide gravity by rotation. This might be preferable to some alien planet very unlike Earth, especially as the crew and passengers would presumably already have been dwelling in one for decades on the journey. Terraforming is also an inherently devastating process, tearing up the terrain and altering the atmosphere in a way that would make a nuclear war look mild, so it is not really a place you would want to live while that process is ongoing. Another option besides androids is to use cloned bodies and uploaded mines downloaded into them, and that gives you the option for reusing colonists too, as ships designed for bringing 10,000 colonists to new worlds can have near infinite unique permutations out of a recruitment pool only a little bit larger, if finding volunteers is hard. Numenon by Marina J. Lostetter discusses some of these themes. A colony founded under an alien sky a hundred light-years from a very different world is already going to be massively divergent before they ever interact with each other or their homeworld, even if the crew was identical, but various combinations selected from a somewhat larger pool guarantees that, not just for the kids of those crews and colonists, but those original colonists as they have changed workload and friend circles influencing their life. Crew member X has a different boss on one voyage, marries a different lass on another. They may live on the ship or be stored digitally or hybrid, where they live in virtual reality till they arrive and are loaded onto clones, androids, or some equivalent. They may have arrived frozen directly from Earth, of course, and we would call those sleeper ships, see that episode for details, which also includes any version of stasis or hibernation. One note there is that while biology and most chemistry stops at ultra-low temperatures, atomic processes do not, so the mild radioactive decay in your own body from isotopes like potassium is smashing up your frozen DNA without repair, so after around 3,000 years on ice, you will have absorbed a lethal radiation dose from your own body and bones. It's very likely the same technology that can revive you from being dead and frozen could fix that too, or that we could feed people diets of food grown on nutrients purified of those isotopes, but it is one of those examples of unexpected problems with a given colonial strategy. The Methuselah ship is one where we assume everybody is biologically immortal and doesn't go on ice, in favor of simply using the trip to catch up on their colonial training and back reading. A colony ship is likely to be a town or even medium-sized nation, so it's not likely to be boring and would probably still be getting books and TV from home, just ever more delayed as light lag increased. These have an overpopulation issue though, since we tend to assume colonists like larger families to begin with and have a lot of time on their hands on the trip, and are not dying off as they and their own grandkids keep having kids. This is also a problem on a classic generation ship, where folks just live and die normal lifetimes, but inside a limited space with limited resources. It is far worse with a nigh-immortal crew, and while population control is likely to be easy in the future as contraception options improve, it's entirely possible it wouldn't be necessary and takes us to a hybrid design we call the Gardener Ship. We explore that more in our episode, Gardening the Galaxy, but the basic notion is that instead of a ship launching from Earth and disassembling itself for scrap at its singular destination, this one instead assumes good automation and life extension technology, and simply parks on some resource-rich asteroid or moon in the destination system, resupplies fuel and raw materials while building colonial gear, and then gives everyone the option of staying on the ship for a future destination or remaining at this colony. That layover may be days or years, but the next journey is likely to be many decades or even centuries, which is a long time to breed up new colonists. If most want to stay at the new colony, the governorship ship picks its next destination with that in mind, one further away perhaps, giving people time to breed back up to a good colonial and crew number. Alternatively, if most opt to remain on the ship, they pick a nearer destination as their next stop, or even consider remaining longer in the system to help the fewer colonists set up while replicating their ship to pick two or more next destinations. This way, a few thousand such governor ships might leave Earth in the next couple of centuries and colonize the whole galaxy in an expanding and diverging trail of new colonies out to the galactic rim and even beyond, as we contemplate in our episode Intergalactic Colonization. Which raises a point on replacement. Given the timelines involved in travel, while backups are handy, it would seem important to only use equipment in your ship or colony, which you could reproduce entirely on board. Nothing that can break and only be replaced by existing spares or waiting for a shipment from home. Though we can't ignore the option that the Gardner ship is building and deploying laser highway relay stations along its journey, and shipments from home or former settlements behind that have developed, might be trailing right behind them, launched later but at higher speeds. Nonetheless, if you can't get your onboard or in situ manufacturing up to the advanced level to make all you need during the trip or on site, then you need to make sure you're oversupplied like crazy with lots of redundancy, which is only partially solved by resupply trailing you from later launches. Alternatively, making your gear or route might cut down on costs and keep folks occupied on the trip. Plus be able to adapt and adjust as new designs arrive from back home, or are thought up by the colonists as they find out more about their new home and contemplate options. The think tanks back on Earth likely will play a big role in delivering new technological designs and techniques to colonists, but at the same time, Light Lag will put some limits on that. A million exports back home might get a great solution back to you a century later, but one or two on site exports might get a very good one much quicker. So too, the colonies can probably share techniques and pass them to their neighbors or back home, as they get farther from Earth the shared knowledge will expand, as will the lag time, and if the gardener ship route was chosen those are very likely to have enormous amounts of institutional knowledge as to what does and doesn't work best for colonies. So I would expect them to have an upper hand over colonies being launched from existing colonies that grew in size and dispatched their own especially as the daughter colonies of Gardner ships likely maintain loyalty and communication to them for some time. Simultaneously, it's very likely Earth could be sending out millions of colonial fleets on direct paths to specific stars, which aren't being slowed by stopping and starting every couple dozen light years, and which are leaving with maximum tech. A couple notes on that. I said fleets, and I find that more plausible than lone ships, honestly. A quartet of ships running parallel a few hundred kilometers from each other is protected by distance from any damage one acquires from space collisions or internal explosions, even of large ships full of antimatter. But that distance still permits unimpeded real-time communication and can ship shuttles back and forth with minimal flight times and fuel expenditures. They could even keep a physical tether between each ship to run ships and high-density data lines on. For that matter these ships hardly need to be streamlined other than aiming for minimal forward cross-section and could be expanded with time, even during the journey. Fundamentally they're just cargo hordes and habitation drums with engines and fuel pods strapped on. Fleets also permit separation to multiple locations nearer the destination, and serve as a pressure valve a single ship can't have. If people come to hate their leaders, a division is possible, and so too a gardener fleet could add a ship every stop, or manufacture it during a trip, and divide whenever the fleet got a bit big or restless with unified leadership. Now I said a moment ago big ships full of antimatter could explode at a decent separation distance without hurting their neighbors, and meant something in the gigaton range, and that's roughly the mass range we'd expect when we start talking about enormous colony ships stretching kilometers in length and transporting human communities in our terraforming zoos. This poses the strategy conflict of ultra-small ships that have the minimum necessary mass and resources to colonize versus behemoths that can do it in style. The normal notion is that there are a set number of places to colonize, and you want to race out with the smallest and fastest and cheapest ship you can. But as I mentioned earlier, this requires cooperation from your neighbors. Your tiny colony ship is still a lot bigger and slower than the relativistic kill missile chasing behind it. So you either need to conquer the whole solar system first, or you need to get tacit agreement from everyone as to who gets what. Neither scenario requires a rush to colonize after or a need for minimalist colony ships. Again, such deals need not be equitable, it could be some major player basically setting the terms in exchange for not nuking their neighbors or wrecking their economies, but still isn't a 100% policy of claiming everything and needing to do it as fast as possible. Second, all such minimalist colony attempts tend to assume some robot able to make more of itself than colony operations. It might be some Tentum probe that arrives at some new system and grabs an asteroid and replicates more copies of itself to go to other systems and develop this one, sending on more waves of ships to other systems. This is the Von Neumann probe or chicken and the Berserker version would be where it replicates missiles to find and kill anyone without the right friend or foe signal. Again, we'll be discussing this more next Sunday in our episode The Dark Forest, Aliens, and a Hostile Galaxy. Now, von Neumann or Berserker probes are fine as a strategy, but makes you wonder why they didn't start those replicators off here in this system. You drop it on an unused asteroid here, not around Alpha Centauri, and any one of the million or so asteroids in the belt that are as big as a mountain or larger could supply you hundreds of millions of such probes. While many of the larger ones could provide enough to send hundreds of probes to each of the hundreds of billions of stars in the galaxy. Assuming they're using fusion drives of some kind, they have an even easier access to fusion fuel in larger amounts in system from places like Jupiter or Saturn. The reality is though that building an enormous gigaton-sized ship for each of the nearest billion solar systems would still only use up one of the largest asteroids or moons, And while acceleration and building times aren't likely to be trivial, when measured across tens of thousands of light years, stopping occasionally for building another wave locally or refueling is kind of trivial, especially if nearer systems can be relied on to ship some material home in repayment for their founding. Which is very likely but also unnecessary, it just makes it profitable, Indeed, while some automated probe might accelerate at a rate no human could survive, let alone a big or spinning cylinder habitat, the ability to accelerate to a cruising speed of half of light speed in a few days, instead of a couple of years, really means nothing on a trip of hundred thousand years, which is what would be needed for most stars in this galaxy at that speed, as opposed to stopping every couple of light centuries to build locally. We don't know how good automated building is, but if you can trust a ship of only a few tons to replicate itself, one much bigger is likely to be more successful, and really shouldn't take something like self-replicators all that more time, especially as we fit it out with human habitats and natural environments as it builds. So you build several thousand of those and launch them out, and each of them builds a hundred clones at stop one and rinse and repeat. Or you go the big Gardner ship path, Either way, you've barely nicked the resources of this single solar system, so why go small, especially when asking them to ship 10 or even a thousand times the mass home we gave them for their ship is an almost trivial repayment. Moreover, it doesn't matter how many g's of acceleration you can handle if your engine can't supply them, and generally speaking, a longer slower burn gets you more final speed than a rapid one. Further, We don't have fusion yet but all indications are that it will be easier and more efficient if it's bigger, so bigger is likely to be faster when it comes to ships. It's also superior for options like Hawking Radiation Black Hole Drives, which the laws of physics basically dictate need to start out no smaller than an aircraft carrier or supertanker, and for maintaining connection on something like a laser highway or energy beam hitting a distant mirror or sail, bigger is easier to hit. You also essentially need the same forward shielding to protect against radiation and microcollisions too. It scales with your cross-section, not your total mass. Now as to where to settle, while the default is to pick those systems which are nearest and which have a nice yellow sun like ours, an Earth-like planet to terraform, in practice it's not likely you would ever bypass any star, even red and brown dwarfs, or even a rogue planet or gas giant. That does not mean they are your first wave targets though. Your gardener ships might opt to stop at the best 1% and leave the rest for future colonists from behind, or spreading from that newest and nearest seed. Same for folks commissioning fleets from home and hauling them at better but more distant candidates first, which later colonize those empty stars around them or get filled in from expansion waves behind. It could go either way, hurling seeds into the wind to hope some take root and seed nearby them, or carefully seeding a field like we do in farming. This might favor places having a shared origin with those nearer them, a home homeworld that's second generation from Earth, or further like some genealogy of worlds. Terminus colonized from Catachant 9, from Kidia, from Fenris, out of Delta Pavonis, from Alpha Centauri, yea, even back to Terra. Realistically though, divergence will be so high with these timelines and distances that your neighbors are going to effectively be aliens. Note we are assuming here we have the galaxy to ourselves and are bypassing other alien civilizations or primitive wars with simple but alien environments and critters. We've discussed those scenarios in other episodes. I also said the best 1% might be colonized first, but that's not necessarily based on blue planets around yellow suns indeed I could make a good case for some very surprising candidates, like a red giant with a very big asteroid belt around it. For the speed of development, nothing beats a vast collection of asteroids, and red giants make a great power supply. They may be in a brief and final phase of life, but everything is relative, and our sun for instance would spend a billion years in its red giant phase. That is twice as long as life on land has existed on Earth, And a hundred thousand times as long as civilization has been around, so brief is kind of debatable. Plus, as we discussed a couple months back, there are ways to extend stellar lifetimes and some of them, like starlifting, are great ways to get metals and building materials while you're at it. Indeed, far superior supplies in terms of quantity than anything you get from asteroids or even disassembling entire planets. Critically though, in the absence of some cheap way to make antimatter and safely storing it, or making artificial black holes, your best option for fast ships is massive energy beaming arrays, and indeed these circumvent the rocket equation and thus allow even faster travel than black hole drives or antimatter, but with less independence as you rely on the beam from elsewhere, though they could be used in tandem. You build a massive energy collector near a star and beam energy to the ship, Pushing it up to speed, and at the destination, slow it by another such beam. But they do require infrastructure on both ends, so they make great new hubs or destinations for more colonists to arrive once you get the terminal array built. We have some tricks for forward deploying these from ships to still slow them down, like launch a solar shade or solar moth toward a star as you approach, and having it slow from solar pressure while using that light to beam backwards to another one which is more quickly slowed by that beam, and does the same, and so on until you get a beamy array around that star that can slow your approaching fleet. So too we have some options for slowing down, like magnetic drag on the local interstellar medium, or even flying through the outer shell of a red giant for air drag, as they are much, much thinner than thin air. It's not like running into volcanic magma as usually portrayed in sci-fi, Additionally, while red giants might be desirable systems, red dwarfs are far more numerous and dense as solar systems go, and thus might make good places for non-planet focused colonization, like Dyson swarms, while dead stars like black holes or neutron stars offer some amazing pathways as civilization and traffic hubs. We are low on time, so check out the episodes Colonizing Black Holes or Colonizing Red Giants for more details on those options and likewise I think we will save a discussion of planetary colonization strategies for its own episode. To wrap up for today though, the key takeaway does seem to be that bigger is better and not slower, and that colonizing the galaxy is very difficult to do without at least reasonably cooperative strategies with neighbors, or at least not openly hostile interactions. That probably is doubly true as I suspect it would be very hard to claim an entire planet, as your own, for a colony of under a million, as others might land separately years later and claim some other continent, and claiming an entire solar system would be far harder, and help from home, by fleet or court, is probably centuries away, so the squatters claiming territory you are not even vaguely using anyway probably would need to be treated as new neighbors. And while Elbow Room or bad relations with neighbors here on Earth might motivate many future colonies, sending pilgrims off to their promised land, far from persecution, perceived or genuine, even as big as space is, it is still a good strategy to learn to get along with your neighbors. So as we mentioned, today marks the start of our ninth season of SFIA, and it has definitely been a process of changes since the early days when it was just a hobby. One of those switchovers that came when we went to a weekly show was getting a website, and I was rather lucky that I have a fairly uncommon name, so it wasn't too hard to get our domain, IsaacArthur.net. That's not the norm though, and whether you're running a YouTube channel, or posting your resume, or working as a consultant, or running for office, or just building a brand name in general, having a website and its accessibility are still critical to success. Your website should show your passion, And that starts with something easy to say and remember, and that's where Hover, with over 400 domain extensions to choose from, can help you brand yourself or your business online. The .me domain extension in particular is popular and appropriate for websites focusing on names and bios, and it's great for launching your portfolio, showcasing who you are and what you do and Huffle can help you find that perfect domain name and their easy-to-use Huffle Connect feature allows you to connect your domain to many website builders with just a few clicks, and it comes with a best-in-class customer support team to help you out without trying to upsell you and personalized emails that match your domain to further support growing your online identity and brand. These days, who doesn't need a domain name? It feels like everyone has got one, so it's important that yours stands out. Have you never used Hover before? Lucky you, Get an additional 10% off any of all Domain Extensions offered for your entire first year, just use the link in the episode's description. It's time to get your portfolio website up and running. So that'll wrap us up for today, but it's only the start of a new year of SFIA and we'll continue rolling out 2023 next week with the big question of what we would do if all of our dreams of post-scarcity civilization turned out wrong and unattainable and some reasons why I don't think that will be the case. Then that weekend, we'll have our mid-month Sci-Fi Sunday episode, examining the possibility we live in a hostile galaxy, and some of the Fermi Paradox solutions discussing that, like Dark Force Theory and Berserker probes. Then in two weeks, we'll explore both the Big Crunch Cosmological Model and the Omega Point, along with options for Eternal Intelligence. And some new models like Conformal Cyclic Cosmology. If you'd like to get alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to hit the like, subscribe, and notification buttons. You can also help support the show on Patreon, and if you want to donate and help in other ways, you can see those options by visiting our website, IsaacArthur.net. You can also catch all of SFIA's episodes early and ad-free on our streaming service Nebula at nebula.tv slash As always, thanks for watching, and have a great week.